Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. Live through these characters, getting into some big fight with mom over what the color of the napkins were. Making selection of events is making meaning. You can change your beliefs about it. You can change the consequence of it. I'm trying to distance myself from that actively. So this week for, we're not going to talk about statistics again. Um, This week for my family and marriage therapy classes, I am looking at, um, we looked at two different branches of therapy. Um, One that is called emotionally focused therapy, which has been around, I think since the eighties, nineties. And then we looked at cognitive behavioral therapy for families, uh, which I know I've talked a little bit about that one just because cognitive behavioral therapy is like very, very popular. Yeah. Um, like just as a as a layman, I know that. So, so here's what I think when I hear those terms, cognitive behavioral therapy, I know. And so I kind of can imagine connecting that to families. What's the other one? Emotional awareness therapy? Emotionally focused therapy. Okay. Yeah. Um, That one, when I hear that, I'm kind of like, isn't that just therapy? So tell me more. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess kind of. Um, So the founder of emotionally focused therapy, whose name I don't have right in front of me, um, but they kind of where they were coming from is they felt that there was a lot of like more formulaic and uh, logical. They felt that a lot of therapy was very formulaic and logical, like just do this and you'll be done. Um, But when working specifically with families, they felt that there was a lot of like emotions involved. Like they kind of had this idea of like emotions being the dance of the family Um, so yes, you can, like, there is some amount of logic that plays into it, but if we try to focus solely on the logic of what's happening or just like changing our thoughts, that wouldn't always see a big change in the emotions, which is a critique of cognitive behavioral therapy is you might get people acting right, but the underlying emotions might still be there, or you might get them to change one like toxic pattern, but they might just replace it with another one. If the family system itself, like the reasons for it aren't understood or there. So this therapy branch, emotionally focused therapy focuses more on, you know, why are these things happening? Uh, actually, that's like a great a way of comparing the two. Cause literally, okay. Emotionally focused therapy is why are these things happening? And then, Let's okay. Now that we've figured that out, we've put most of our work together into figuring those things out and understanding each other. Let's put a little less time into trying to fix them because awareness is the bigger thing. Mm. Um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, does not care about the why, like literally. They're like going into the past and trying to muck about and all this stuff isn't important. We've got to be in the present. Like, how do we help you right now and tomorrow Um, through, like, just changing your interpretations? I know a while ago we talked about ABC, um, which I think I I had flubbed a little bit. But it's essentially the idea of, like, A, B, C. There's obviously a line. A is when something happens. B is the interpretation of what happens. And then C is the emotional beliefs caused by that interpretation. Um, The way I remember it is a, an event (laughs) B the beliefs about that event and C the consequence of that event. Um, So if you can change that cycle, when something happens, if you can change your beliefs about it, you can change the consequence of it is essentially the idea. And you're, you're connecting that one. You're connecting ABC to which, which form? A cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay, so quest the idea is that like there's go ahead. Well, so is is cognitive behavioral therapy is that the one where 
is it's more, you know, like people, if, okay, this is just a hypothetical scenario, but if somebody is like struggling with anxiety, is this the type of therapy where, you know, you'll tell them to like focus on their breathing and like their actual Mm -hmm. movements and like, like physical stuff? Yes. Yep. That is a part of cognitive behavioral therapy. The idea is that, um, in by having them focus in on their body and doing things that are naturally like the opposite of anxiety provoking behaviors, like taking deep breaths and slowing down, like you're disrupting the pattern essentially. Okay. Um, like this is this is not doing it justice at all. This is not doing cognitive behavioral therapy justice at all. But the basic premise is similar to a rubber band snap. Do you ever see that where someone like wears a rubber band and if they ever think about something oh, yeah, or yeah, do yeah. something weird, they they it's a lot of operant conditioning, like spraying like the cat um, with the bottle of water. Exactly, it's the idea that instead of just letting a pattern go on and on and on, if you disrupt the pattern, that like over the long run will just start a new pattern. Got it. Um. But yeah, I thought, I don't know. I thought those two things were kind of interesting. I guess in, hmm, it, this might be a big question to put on you as a as a lay person, but what do you think of those two therapies, one that focuses more on emotions and one that focuses more on cognition, do you, do you have a personal lean towards one or the other? Or if you had to guess if one's more effective than the other, which one you think would be more effective? Well, I guess... In the context, let's put it this way, in the context of treating families, I don't know if that makes it harder or easier. Yeah. Okay. So with families, I would think, well, okay, so here's here's a thought process and I can already see the problems with it, but here's what I think people would think. And that is with the emotional, emotionally focused therapy in a family unit specifically, I think that you get people talking about like kind of uncomfortable topics and probably, you know, probably like, I guess, showing your emotions to like a therapist or like processing with them is already uncomfortable enough. But then you're doing that in front of your family. I feel like that would get really messy or at least I think people would think that it gets really messy and be afraid of that. And so I could see if I had to guess, I would think a lot of people would go to the other end of the cognitive behavioral and be like, Hey, we don't have to, we don't have to, you know, look under the hood. We don't have to get into all that stuff. Let's just talk about actions. I think that's probably if not what I would lean towards, it's probably what a lot of people lean towards. That's my answer. I'm locking it in. Yeah. I think I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy is a very popular therapy because of how quickly it can give results. Um, insurance loves it. Um, it offers really quick re- results. You know, you don't have to necessarily spend a lot of time drudging up what has happened. Um, so it is the move away from like the psychodynamic roots. Huh, it applies. Excuse me. Oh, I'm so tired at 11 a.m. Uh, it, <laughs> it, uh, it moves away from the psychodynamic roots, which is more, let's talk about emotions and is really an easy therapy to apply to a lot of situations. Um, and I think for that reason, that's why it's very successful in families Especially because with families, it's kind of you're on, you're on even more of a timer because you're not going to be able to get the whole family to show up for a long period of time. Yeah. So being able just to get in there, get some understanding, and then just get to work um, is kind of you know important. Uh, now, of course, knowing me, you know that I think cognitive behavioral therapy <laughs> is missing a big part of the picture. Um, I love some of the tools, like I think. CBT, I need to learn it because of it's it's like 
it's like Batman's tool belt, you know, it's his utility belt. It's got all these great interpretations and techniques. But like if you have just the tool belt, you don't have Batman like Batman's also the world's greatest detective. You have to have both of them together. Why am I so obsessed on Batman right now? I'm not even that much of a Batman <laughs> fan. That's just where this analogy is going. Well, I was um, I was even surprised as you were explaining them that they are separate. And I know that you're kind of like probably simplifying just to show the difference between the two. But still, it sounds like they're both. They're both, you know, they would go like hand in hand. Yes, I think the. The issue is. And there is like a branch of practicing therapy called like multimodal, which is where you take pieces of multi modes of uh, I'm just saying the name again, you take pieces from a bunch of different therapies, and you use them all together. And I think the advantage of that is, oh, I'm going to take a lot of the, you know, emotional focus therapy, and we're going to really get into the understanding of why we're doing what we're doing. And then after that, I'll use a bunch of cognitive behavioral tools. And then we'll get into the really like, thought stopping and stuff like that, um, which is good. But I think the problem that then creates is just the amount of time you're sinking into therapy. Like I think most people would say that it's much, maybe not most people. I think there's a push that it's better to practice out of one, learn multiple modes, but figure out which one would be best for this individual client and practice out of that as soon as you can. Mm -hmm. So that you're not spreading out time, which is a very limited resource with clients um, doing a little bit of everything. I think that's why they would kind of maybe do one or the other, which once again, especially like with insurance, is why cognitive behavioral therapy is so favored because it's so quick. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for people to get comfortable and talk about their feelings. It's just, hey, you seem a little angry. Let's do some thought swapping let's do some like pattern changing let's figure out i mean family systems it's like an equation if if this thing makes you mad and when you're mad you then do this well then we have to stop this thing and we have to change how you react to the situations so that this changes it's it's just like doing yeah it's just like doing math um but I think for me personally, although, like I said, I want to learn CBT, I also just am very interested in emotional focus therapy. Um, I think like a couple quotes that I read just while going through, like essentially one, I think Young had said that like when you listen to your emotions, like you know what you need. I think that that type of idea has always been very true. I've always, I've always kind of felt very similar um, to the chagrin, 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 chagrin of others. Am I using that word right? <laughs> yes. Okay. To the chagrin of others, um, I've always tried to be very like to listen to mine and other people's emotions because I think too much bottling up of emotions, um you know, can lead to kind of dysfunction. If you put a lot of pressured, if you put a lot of pressure into a glass bottle, the glass bottle is going to explode. You know, you, you can try to do as much as you can to keep that glass bottle together. Um, but the best thing to do is to find a way of alleviating the pressure and finding out what's causing the pressure, um, which I think emotionally focused therapy does very well. Um, so I don't know that that's kind of my rant for a little bit. Do you have any more questions? I can, I can keep ranting. I just wanted to pause. See if you have any questions. Well, uh, I think, I think it's interesting, like how, how doing it in a family changes my impression of those types of therapy. Yes. Because when you were first mm -hmm. asking me earlier, I was going to have a completely different answer about which type of therapy I thought was better until you said like in a family, 
Like that, that definitely, you know, like compound some of the, probably the benefits and the, you know, negative or like discomforts, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And I don't even know, like, I'm not studying it. I've never done it. So I'm not even saying it's good or bad, but it definitely like picturing doing that either of those sorts of therapy in a family is like, what would that be like? Yeah. Well, I know. Um, hmm. <laughs> okay. So I had to watch Encanto. Okay. Yeah. You're watching Encanto? Uh, no, I didn't. I'm like, no, I don't even I, know which I one hadn't watched it, it either. Is. Yeah. Um, it's like a Latino family magic powers written by the guy who wrote, or at least the music's by the guy who wrote Hamilton. Okay, so it is the super like, um, musical one. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah. I'd never seen it. Um, never watched it, and I had to do. It's kind of like a three part project for the class to pick a pick a movie from a list of movies build out like hey here's my diagnosis for the main character here's my diagnosis for the family and then here's my diagnose here's my treatment plan so this week i have to do for the family um but last week it was just a diagnosis on the main character um and as i was kind of going through and watching the movie i was getting like a bit weepy like throughout the whole movie, which I know is not really hard for me to it's not hard for me to get weepy at any movie. I watched Happy Feet and teared up because <laughs> um, the penguin just they just wouldn't let him dance. And he just wanted to dance. <laughs> um, but. Even like before that, too, as I was watching, as I was building out like our own family genogram. Um, this is to the argument I'm making is pro emotional understanding. I think that family units tend in my experience, tend to actually, this might even specifically be like, you know, European Americans or Caucasians tend to in families treat themselves like individual operators. Mm. Um, There isn't as much of like a family. I mean, there's a family system, but there isn't that certain amount of like openness about like what each other's going through, at least from like a parent to a kid perspective. So it would be awkward in family therapy to talk about these emotions and do this, this opening up process. However, what that does is as the family, as each family member is kind of gets to the point where they they are able to open and share with each other. And even when members of the family are able to share things they haven't said to other family members that have been bothering them to each other, or if someone's able to say, I don't know if you guys see this, but when you two do these things, like this is what happens, that those spoken things and that understanding and hearing from other people's perspective, that process in and of itself, like widens the ability for more individual emotional expression and also widens the ability to have like more understanding and fonder feelings for the other individuals in the family. Um, So almost even of itself, that understanding like gaining more understanding about your family um, is a therapeutic force for the individual as well for the family. Like I'm thinking back to the days when like, so, okay, that's the whole process of Encanto. I need to focus my training. That's the whole focus of the movie Encanto is that she discovers more and more of her individual family members struggles. She's able to help them. And that widens to the point Whereas they understand themselves, there's a greater understanding of the entire family, and that helps the entire family. Like, there's all these different stereotypes and things the family was trying to fit into because they felt like that was their role, and they talked. And yeah, some of those things stay the same, but there's a greater appreciation, more forgiveness, more like grace offered to each other, etc. Yeah. Now I can switch. So when I, so in our own family, 
like the the Nisley clan. Like when I was in early high school, middle school, middle school, early high school, uh, early college, even maybe um, like I used to fight with mom all the freaking time. Yeah. Like not because of mom, just because of like just because of me. I was a little brat. Um, and I was stubborn and I liked to debate over stupid stuff. And I, I can remember us going to Carabas and me getting into some big fight with mom over what the color of the napkins were. <laughs> it's such a stupid little fight. At, but at this point, this had become an auto. Huh? At Carabas. At Carabas. Yes. Um, and this pattern of just like fighting with my mom had become just so so much of a pattern so ingrained i wasn't really even thinking about that point i didn't think about how it really affected the family i didn't think about how it affected mom um but mom started tearing up a little bit and then you and dad you weren't like you were stressed you were mad but you weren't like tearing me a new one you just shared your views on it um and that helped me kind of look at the whole thing and start to ask, why am I doing this? What's going on? Like, how is this affecting the whole family? And that spoken, those spoken words helped to really help me to check myself and why I do things, um, which I thought was very interesting. Well, not very interesting, very helpful. It was very helpful for me. And so as I kind of look back and even look at, other families. I think that's a, I think that's a big thing. I I think that family therapy in this regard can be very helpful for couples because, you know, the more you can understand about your significant other, the more you are able to have a deeper understanding for why they are the way they are. And my fear of working with cognitive behavioral therapy only is that for couples and for families that don't understand and don't have an appreciation for each other, I think CBT can be taken out of context and skewed to a point where it just becomes, we know the tools to fix this problem. Why don't you just fix it? And it almost becomes another tool in a dysfunctional family to breed more dysfunction because it's just another tool of, well, you should just fix the problem. The problem must be you. And that's like, that's like not okay. That's that you might have temporary change where people learn how to fix things on the surface for a little bit, but new dysfunction will just arise because we haven't really treated what's going on under the surface, um, which is longer, more awkward work. But I think if those issues get treated, they'll always be surface level problems. But if you can treat what's going on under the surface and create systems where families can speak to and address those issues more openly, I think that gives the family more efficacy and self-reliance to be able to fix future problems. Like I think if you just give them CBT tools, sure, problems will rise and they'll apply thought stopping and they'll apply replacements and they'll apply divert like doing things like that. And that will help. But that might just bottle those emotions deeper down. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, very much like instead of like external behavior management instead of any actual change. Exactly. Exactly. So like different problem will arise. They'll apply the same solutions to it, but there'll still be that something under the surface that's smoldering that they've just pushed more stuff down into. And if they, I don't know. So not that CBT doesn't, I'm making CBT sound really bad. Of course, it's going to handle some underlying issues and it's going to address some patterns and it's going to get into that. Um, I just like more of a focus on that. As, as of this point, as of 2023, I I personally favor more of a focus on um, understanding the other humans and understanding the emotions behind actions rather than just trying to fix actions themselves. Yeah. I don't think you're saying anything that goes against CBT and, and the, for me, the examples I've heard of CBT are always very 
uh, I don't want to say counterintuitive, but, but yeah, I, I heard somebody talking about, yeah, they had really bad anxiety that like kept them from doing their job even. And they started uh, getting cognitive behavioral therapy and all of the things, let's see if I can explain this. All of the things that they were saying they learned to do because of CBT were all like really cool things like, oh, wow, I never I didn't know that those two things were related. Like the way you mm -hmm. I keep using this example, like, oh, the way you breathe, like can, you know, bring you out of a panic attack, that sort of thing. And that's like a really dumb mm -hmm. Tim example. But he was actually giving like things that as I was hearing them, I was like, I never in a million years would have put those two things together. And so I think that's the strength of CBT is probably when you're learning those sorts of things. And that, that sort of therapy is trying to, I mean, it's in the name, it's, it's giving you cognitive behaviors that will like affect your physical and mental state all of that to say i think maybe the like shadow side of it or just when it's not done well or if like somebody doesn't really know what it is i think if i had to anticipate that it's it's more where you feel like oh i'm anxious and the therapist is just going to tell me to stop being anxious which is not good. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's what a therapist would do, but I'm saying if that's what the person feels like, that's in that moment, it like loses its effectiveness as therapy. Cause that just feels like, like what you were saying, it feels like external, just like management of something as opposed to what it's supposed to be. I assume is some sort of like inward, something that like reaches inward. I don't know. Am, am I making any sense? No, I think you're making sense. Like, it's not that cognitive behavioral therapy, like, is bad or only focuses on external action based things. That's not the case. But I think that maybe what you're saying is it can be interpreted by clients who want more of an emotional understanding and are seeking that. If someone tries to apply CBT to their situations, it might just seem like another school teacher or another parent in their life or another like boss or whatever, or another friend just being like, Hey, just like get over it. Here's how you get over it. And they might not want to be like, they, they want to change, but they might not just want to apply like a behavior to it or pick up another like thing to do. They might really want to, get some more understanding. Um, yeah. Am I interpreting you correctly? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. Not that it is that way, but that it could seem that way. And, and really I'm yeah. saying to like, to a certain, a certain type of client who like you were saying does have things bottling up under the surface, then yeah, for them, what they need might not be like another action or another external like you know rules so to speak they might need definitely the more like emotionally focused thing so you know i'm sure it's like everything just different people have different needs yeah and like to emotionally focused therapies you know to their weakness if you focus emotionally focused therapy yeah sure it's great but it's there's a lean where you could focus too much on why things are happening and like the stories and getting people to share that you like almost do that too much. You're trying to make something more that's there than there is there. And that could annoy people or people are coming into therapy because they want to just change something. They want to change and they don't want to talk and they want to just get some new behaviors. And if the therapist is always trying to get them to talk or get them to open up or get them to like dig deeper they they might just be like, okay, therapy is a waste of my time. I don't want to talk. I want to do something. So like, obviously there's two sides of the spectrum. Um, 
Yeah. And I think I think that's the big thing is just acknowledging that like, hey, the, these are on opposite sides of the spectrum. And if you go way too far into one side or the other, like you're going to lose clients. But it's important to be able to know your client because not every client is going to not every client, not every family is going to benefit from EFT. But the same thing can be true for CBT. And you might even in a family like this is maybe a little bit stereotypical. Uh, Mom and okay, I'm trying to think if if our family, me, you, mom and dad went into family therapy, I think me and mom would want to do EFT. And I think you and dad would want to do CBT. Possibly. And that's and that's in our family of four. I think all of us would do both, but I think that's the lean. Um, so I think that's where it's like, even in a family, you could have a split. So it's, it's just important to know your clients and tailor that to your clients. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the, this is a, maybe another one of those moments where I'm seeing like how you and I kind of come at the same thing from different directions because mm-hmm. uh, as you were talking about emotionally focused therapy and that idea of kind of getting getting down to a person's motivations or or really you were talking about it with the movie of like this main character i think you were saying like having these moments of i guess realization as it relates to her family members and her loved ones about like Oh, these are, I'm assuming like what is happening in the movie is like, oh, these are people too. They have their own struggles too. And there's like that moment Mm -hmm. where you see them in a new light. And, you know, you're kind of saying that that's like a really, I don't know, resonant idea for you. I feel like for me, that is a lot of my motivation with like writing and you know, stories and poetry and music, that sort of thing is, gosh, I'm going to, I'm forgetting the word right now, but in like literary theory, it's not catharsis. Oh, although that can be something catharsis is when like you're reading a story and, uh, the character, like hypothetical example Maybe the character uh, has had like a parent die and the character mm-hmm. processes it. And gosh, I'm I'm kind of botching this. Uh, I'm kind of. And by proxy, you process it. Yeah, well, I'm. Yes, I'm kind of mixing up catharsis and transference. But yes, that's the idea is like you live through these characters and you can even like then walk away changed. But really what I'm getting at is there's mm-hmm. another term that I'm forgetting at the moment, but it's like that, that like lightning strike, that like moment of realization and characters have it and readers have it where, yeah, there's like a deeply, um, I guess, emotional realization And then the character walks away different or the reader walks away from the story different. And to me, that's that's kind of what you're describing with emotionally focused therapy. Like you're talking about a a science of helping people and helping families get to that those realizations. But I think that for me. That is also a lot of what like music is, a lot of what literature and movies and the arts are and what they can be is like bringing people to those same moments. Does that make sense? Yes. No, it does. I'm actually glad you went there because I was feeling like I was talking too much, but I had this like wonder where I don't know if it was Hank Green or if it was one of the guys from uh, Mythbusters, 
or some other science guy I used to listen to. But I remember them, they were talking about going on tour and they had talked about how, I forget the name of the process, but they talked about like what happens biologically when you have that aha moment. Mm -hmm. I think I remembered it for JV because it was this idea of when you have this like aha moment, when you learn something like new um, that you've never heard before, it it has this like it, the, the chemicals it releases in your brain. It's like this feel good chemical. It like cements the memory because it's the first time you learned it. It has all these like beneficial properties. And I was thinking how. I think emotionally focused therapy does something very similar. But what you're learning is you're learning about the people for family therapy. You're learning about the people in your family. Um, so it's not just everybody sharing and then you feel good and you hug after. Like I wonder what is happening even biologically when you learn something you've never learned about your spouse or about your you know, kids or about your parents or about your grandparents, like that aha moment is going to have positive triggers. And that could even be why the book mentions how it's like empathy building and how it builds closer bonds. Um, there was some guy, I think Gottman is his name. He's a big researcher in couples therapy, like big researcher. Like he puts couples in a house. They sign up to it, obviously. And they're wearing heart monitors and there's cameras everywhere and they're like being watched so that they can record, okay, unhealthy couples, here's what leads up to unhealth. Like healthy couples, here's what leads up to health. Like even from like a small standpoint. But he was saying how um, one of the things that they see that leads to success in couples is continually learning more about your significant other and not just little factoids, but like big questions, like big open-ended questions. Like, how do you feel as a mother right now? How do you feel about your career? You know, how do you feel about justice? Like, and I think the reason why that might be is because those are such big aha moments. And I think it's cliche. Everyone's heard this, like you should never, you should always be learning more about your spouse. There's always more to learn. And that's true. And I think that when you when you are able to get into the habit of like kind of continually pulling out those aha moments with your family members, it just gives you more and more of an appreciation because literally like maybe even because of this, the chemical release that goes off. I mean, it's more than that, obviously, but the chemicals, you know, they, they help lead into it. Um, I don't know. I think that's just it's interesting. It's interesting how we're wired. Yeah. Yeah. There is something about, and, and we've talked about this a lot too, like there is a level of learning and knowledge that is kind of like the top layer. And it's, it's like, you know, more shallow and it doesn't go as deep. And when I say shallow, I don't mean it's shallow as in like, you know, pop culture gossip or like the price of eggs. But I'm just saying like, there's a lot of information out there that never really gets like deep into you. And the, the mm -hmm. part that we've talked about a lot is how in like 21st century life and with the internet that there's even more of that like there's so much more access so many more messages we're coming across every day like for your brain to process and so i think what you and i are both talking about is like those aha moments or those like epiphanies are the moments where something like really cuts down to the heart of it uh yeah man i wish i remembered what what this moment like in a story the moment where the character changes it's not the climax because the climax is related to the plot of the story but there it is a it's a mm -hmm. great word like that just describes it perfectly if i could remember it but oh well i guess epiphanies works I feel like it would almost be like a religious word i it could be i don't really remember but yeah but that that's even sort of my 
uh, I don't know. Like I, like I said, that's sort of my interest with um, writing and whatnot is, is not that you or the reader like walks away with a lesson. Cause that's kind of like weird or lame. Right. That's kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. children's stories where like you walk away with, and now I know what I'm supposed to do. It's not like that, but any good story. I mean, I just, I've finished a couple books here in the last couple weeks. And even just by, by virtue of a story has like a theme and makes you think about certain things. You're saying the same thing with the movie you watch. It just like makes you, it makes you think and it makes you not just like think in that shallow way, like I was saying, but like it actually makes you like realize something. And, you know, those moments don't happen every day, but when they do, I think they're very motivating and they, they change you in a way that is different than like what we were talking about. If you just feel like, man, I already have so many things I have to do. I already have like a a to-do list and so many rules and this and that. And now I'm just supposed to like do even more stuff and do stuff differently. Like that kind of sounds hard compared to if you just have like a cool interaction with a person or a conversation or a story that like leaves you different. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling here. Yes. No, no, like you're saying like it's kind of like a a information or just a new list of tasks, new list of tasks might potentially change what you do a little bit. But if you can get someone to internalize something and change how they interpret themselves and how they interpret their schedules, like if you can get that to change even just a little bit, I think that has a much more drastic change. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at the same time, I think that you can't try to force those internalizations. Like mm-hmm. if you're writing, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking of my example again, because it's, you know, personal to me. But like if you're writing a novel, you don't expect that it's going to like change every person's life who reads it like. No, it's it's entertainment, but still, I don't know. Does that happen to like does does one out of a hundred people have like a really cool personal experience with it? Even that seems like a pretty good, pretty good number. So, and, and the same thing in therapy. I think that we've like kind of spotted out some potential issues with like CBT, but I think the same thing could be true on like emotionally focused therapy is if, a if, you know, you can't really force that from a client, I wouldn't think. And, you know, you, so you were giving the example of you in like middle school being like stubborn. And I feel that that's so generous of you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I feel like if you worded that so nicely, <laughs> if we took if we took you then and like say say that all four of us would have gone to like an emotionally focused therapy, you I feel like and me too, I'm not it's not special to you, but that age of like middle school, if you want to get a kid to like open up and talk about their emotions, I feel like whatever the therapist says to do the kid is just going to run in the opposite direction for no like deep emotional reason. Literally just like, that's what being a middle schooler is. It's like, if you tell me what to do, no, I, I don't care. And so that, that I think could be the downfall of like an emotional focus is that everybody there has to be like willing to go there. And, and really that you can't force those moments is what I'm saying. No. Yeah. I think, I think you're a hundred percent right. It's almost like, um, Hmm. So this could be an interesting thing for going back to your example of the, of the family with the middle school students. I think in a, in a, in a church setting, 
which is my big background. You know, I did it for a long time. Um, I think students were much more keen to share when a leader has already shared, um, which is why I always like to have as many people as I was allowed to uh, speak and share their stories, even if they weren't necessarily like all put together. I think the idea of having a leader on a stage sharing their story um, said to the middle school kids in the room who were listening to that story, I can do this too. You know, they had this aha moment of like, oh, this has happened for somebody else. I can talk to people. I can share my story. And I think that that can be maybe for that age group, but I might, I'm cool. I'm pulling out a soapbox. I'm throwing away logic. I'm pulling out a motion. Um, I, I wonder if uh, that'll be a great clip for the intro. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, I wonder if there is something more to the idea of and the power of a testimony or a shared story, a shared experience over like just a straight up lesson Um, or like here's some things you could do. Like the difference between like a self-help book and someone like a memoir. I know that in our culture, I think we're very drawn to the self-help book. Like, what? how can I apply little tiny trinkets of information to make my life better? Um, and we kind of talked about last week, I think, about like the, you know, kind of God complex. How can I be my own God and make my own life better? But I think when you hear, when you hear someone's testimony, and if you're maybe not from like a church background, hey, that's okay. Testimony is just like, shared that you share in your story you share in what you've been through what you've learned and even what you're currently struggling with i think when you hear another human share that um it's very similar to what you're talking about of when you read that in a story like it gives you the idea it helps you see your problem in a bigger context it helps you see what you're going through in a new light it helps you kind of give a little bit more grace to yourself because maybe you've been extending grace to the person who you're reading about or talking to um, or listening to share their story. And I think that, I think that whereas, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, I think that whereas in a self-help book, there's not that, emotional side to it there's not that internalization of it that's there's not the application to your whole life i think when you hear it from another person i'm trying to get back on the rails i heard something and i got completely distracted um i think when you hear another person share what they're going through or what they've been through it's almost like hearing like a good parable it's almost like hearing a good story where instead of just being given the answer Okay, I'm back on. When someone shares from their life about how they got through a situation or they made it through something difficult, I think you internalize, or maybe you see it in a movie. I think you understand my situation's different. So I'm not going to be able to do it the exact same way they did. But I now know it can be done. And I've gained enough of a principle, enough of, of the idea of the principle to be able to put that internally into what I do um, so that I can start making small changes. It's not like a self-help book where it's just like, if you do a, a plus B equals C, it's like bigger than that. It's like a whole understanding that something can be done and the general idea of like how to do it. And that gives the person listening, like the tools needed to slowly like over more time get through that situation and really change their entire life, which I think is what you'd want to do as a writer. If I'm hearing you correctly, like you're, you're trying to write, you know, maybe nonfiction in a way that someone, when they're reading about your character going through a situation can say, okay, maybe if this other character who's got human qualities can go through what I'm going through and get through it, maybe that'll give me like, a, a way to interpret my life to be able to do the same thing, like the tools I need to overcome similar situations. Sorry, that was a big ramble that got off the rails. Uh, 
No, that's 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 it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was gonna say <laughs> you got off the rails and then back on the rails. Uh, and this is actually so I've kind of been talking about what I was planning on bringing this week, but like real specifically, you hit on like the one thing I was gonna bring this week, which is uh, I was reading. You know, more of the same book I talked about from last week. And just one little tidbit that I thought was interesting is he talks about the word plot, like, you know, plot as in PLOT, the way that a story or or whatever has plot. And he he in this one paragraph just goes through the different meanings that that word can have, because the obvious one in the context of what we're talking about is what I just said, like the plot to a story. But if you think about it in English, like that same word can be, you know, plotting a graph or plotting, you know, plotting points on a graph or, you know, plotting out a map. Like we're going to go on a trip and here are the points that we're plotting out for, uh, our trip or like you're up, you know, on the mountain, like looking over the land and plotting it out or even like a plot of land, like, Hey, I've got this, you know, acre, Mm. that's a plot of land. And, you know, sometimes this isn't exactly like, this isn't the etymology of that word, but sometimes just looking at the, the different uses that one word can have can be like illuminating, I guess. And so, yeah, my point being, and so somewhat of what the author gets at in this book too, is that, that a plot is not just what we think of in a story but it can also be an action of plotting something out. Mm. And that is for the purpose of either. I mean, I'm kind of like paraphrasing. This is not exactly from the book. That's either for the purpose of discovery or there's a word I'm trying to think of that I'm not, uh, I'm not finding but you know discovery or ultimately like making meaning of mm-hmm. something and that could be making meaning of a map or it could be making meaning of a story and what gets me off on all of this is what you were saying about like you know in church like people sharing their testimonies like exactly that is people telling the plot of their life mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and so it doesn't matter if it's fiction, doesn't matter if it's nonfiction. When we hear a story, there is a there is something going on in between the beginning and the end. Like that's kind of what every story is, and that might sound very like abstract, but a story is not just a listing of events. Like a story is not. This morning, my alarm went off. I stepped out of bed. I turned off the fan. I brushed my teeth. That's not a story. That's like a chronicling of events. When you Mm -hmm. tell a story, again, fiction or nonfiction, you are making selection of events in a way that is making meaning of it. It's more of an interpretation of events. It's an event. Yes. And the interpretation of them. Like, why? Yes, plot is interpretation. And and that's what this chapter was kind of focused on is like uh the difference between he's really talking a lot about like history mm-hmm. and how history has interpretation and like most of what we think of as history really if like you drill down into it uh so he he's not criticizing this, but he's saying history is just as much a matter of interpretation as anything else, as reading a story or reading the Bible or reading somebody's autobiography, because 
as humans, like we don't know every fact. We don't know every literal thing that happens in the world or the universe or even our country or even our own life. But what we're constantly doing as humans, like the human brain is plotting things out and making meaning of them. And so, yes, exactly. Back to your point. The best way for anybody really to learn like anything is through a story. And when Mm -hmm. I say story, I don't mean, again, I don't necessarily mean like a novel, like a nonfiction story. It can be a true story. But hearing a true story, even hearing like a going back to even hearing like a nursery rhyme or a children's book in some instance, anything that is a story is probably going to be like more affecting to a person than to always just be told, here's what you need to do. Here's what's right. Here's the truth. Here's so on and so forth. Those things can and maybe should all be packaged like in in stories. Um, and yeah, I'm getting I'm getting kind of deep in the weeds here because like what I'm not saying is like, oh, the world would the world would just be better if we had more storytellers like that sounds <laughs> like a bad TED talk. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying like literally if you are in you know, advertising, if you're in communications, if you're in anything, a good writer is figuring out how to take the thing they want you to know and putting it into story form, you know, like you'll read, you know, the, the instructions on the sign in the subway, like more than you realize are designed to like bring you into a story. So I'm not saying like some kumbaya type of thing, But I'm just getting back to your point, which is like, yeah, self-help and things that are like trying to tell you, here's what to do. Here's more information, like information and like transformation aren't necessarily the same, the same thing. Mm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Huh. Sorry. You give me like three things to think about all at once. Um, I do feel like it's a very it's just like a. When I say that, I can totally imagine like a 2013 uh, like book cover or Instagram post or something. It's like what the world needs is more story. And that's not what I'm <laughs> not at all. Like I'm trying to distance myself from that actively. But you you know what I'm saying? See, I I get what you're saying, but I kind of like I do think it's kind of true. Like, even going back to what um, that Gottman, Dr. Gottman, Professor Gottman, whatever you want to call him, what he was saying is that, like, couples that are unhealthy tend to, like, be chroniclers. Like, mm-hmm. they, they're listing off facts, negative facts about the other people, and they're looking for those negative facts. They're not looking for interpretation. They're looking for, I'm annoyed. Why am I annoyed? It's because it gets very equation-like. And he also even mentioned that, like, when you have that kind of equation outlook and that kind of, like, bitterness caused by, you do something I don't like, I don't care why, you're just doing it, stop. Like, that can, like, take up to four years, like, off your life and, like, lower your Mm. immune system. Um, And the opposite of that is to have this more understanding approach where you understand that like, Hey, we're humans. There's, there's a story behind what's going on. Um, so let's like engage, even if it's not a great story, like, Oh, you didn't do the laundry. What's the story behind that? Like, yeah, it's not, I, that's kind of where I, I can see you getting off into like the 2013 Instagram post. Um, but like just engaging with your spouse and, having a deeper understanding for who they are as a person and, and getting that deeper understanding for your family, for other humans, whatever. I think that has a much, I mean, it has a bigger impact in this example on the relationship, but I think even as humans, like I feel like nowadays we're being presented a lot more as facts. Um, and a lot less as like these big interpretations or these big stories 
And I think that could be more helpful for us is to have that more, more of those stories, more of that humanizing element and less of like the clinical clean boiling people down to like percentages on a paper. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's like, you know, on, on the Substack. that's a big theme. I think of just like my writing in general is, uh, and actually going back to CS Lewis, I was talking about this with somebody recently. The thing I really like about CS Lewis is that he was very, very smart and he's known as mm-hmm. like a thinker and like an intellectual person, but he placed very high value on like what it means just to be a person and that it means something to be a human. And I think that that is like a, a something I appreciate in him. It's like a theme of my own writing as well is like that you don't have to be either. I mean, it, it can play out in a lot of ways. Like in the intellectual world, there's people who, it's like the way you be smart is by not having feelings and emotions and thinking of mm. things, you know, thinking of things rationally. And obviously you should be, you should be rational, but there's, there's a certain school of thought where it's like, like, bro, did you just, did you just enjoy something like, like <laughs> I, I saw this tweet the other day and, uh, Gosh, let me pull it up because I I screenshotted it, but it was like a perfect encapsulation of this. Are you familiar with? Well, actually, maybe I shouldn't say what account it's from. Gosh, I'm searching, searching, searching. Yeah, we've got such a big following that we're probably going to start beef. All of our listeners, uh, man, we're just going to have such a ripple. Well, I was more so going to say that I don't know if. Uh, like sometimes you say the name of an account and you think it's like perfectly fine. And then you find out it's the most like radical whatever. And you're like, oh man, I, I probably sh- wish that had not given them a shout out. But anyway, so this tweet was like uh, somebody. There's, there's an original question and the person is like, I think maybe this is taking place in like another country or like a war zone or something. And somebody's like, can somebody logically explain to me why this group is the bad guy? And it's kind of like that intellectual air of like, just use, just use facts, bro. Like just use logic. And somebody replies to that tweet for me. Yeah. Somebody replies to that tweet. They're like, uh, well they killed my family. So yeah, I think they're the bad guy. And then the original guy replies back and he's like, oh, so appeal to emotion. That's a logical fallacy. And that's that's it's one of those things that uh, the account just like chronicles like the worst, dumbest tweets of all time. So people obviously know that like that's, you know, but literally that is kind of the logical conclusion of like a certain school of thought, which is like bro, we just got to be objective. Like, no, I don't have a perspective. I just got, I have facts and knowledge. And it's like, well, no, actually, first off, you can be more objective about a matter. Like, that's true. You know, you can be, you can step back and realize like, okay, I'm being a little bit biased here. But also, there is a side of being a human where, yeah, if somebody kills your family, you're allowed to feel a certain type of way about that too. And yeah. So, so back to CS Lewis, like with much, (laughs) what a transition, Um, but yeah, he, (laughs) he just had such a, like he never lost that there is something about like, there's something to life and it's not just all about like facts and figures, but that we're people and part of what that means is that we do feel things and that can be a good thing. That can be a negative thing, you know, so on and so forth. So yeah, I forget what it even is that you said that uh, 
reminded me of that. But but just talking about uh yeah, the idea that like we're people. Yeah. Like that we learn more from stories than we do just from facts. Not the facts are bad. I think that is when I when I say the whole thing of like the the 2013 like just gross like oh stories will change the world like i agree with everything we're saying but i think that there's a way of like i guess i don't place facts and story as opposite ends of a spectrum and so it's one or the other I think that it is realizing that as we go, just as we live, as we go through our day, as we think thoughts, we're constantly interpreting things, like you said, and we need to be aware of our interpretations and we need to, you know, hopefully you're going to figure out what are the things that I live for? What are the things that are important to me? But that's not like it, it's not all that. And oh, also facts are way over there. Because I think that 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 is the part of it that I have an I have an aversion to. And when I reference like the story will change the world type of thing, I don't think it's like. You know, if I were running like a presidential campaign, I wouldn't just get up and be like, man, stories are going to change our country. I think that's like kind of dumb. But I do think you would stand up there and you would say like, hey, here is, I don't know, whatever, X issue, X problem. How did we get here? It's because we believed this. And if you you look at what if you look at what America is, we have this value of why, but we're not living up to why value. And so I think that here are some ways that we can bring this into alignment and here are the facts and figures that support that. Like what I'm saying is I think that I think that the idea of telling stories isn't to get like somewhere off in the clouds where you're just detached from reality. Mm -hmm. It's that like reality, there is the facts and figures side and there is the making meaning and interpretation side. And I think that those things should be very, hand in hand so maybe that's a better way of saying like when i'm making fun of like stories will change the world that's why is because i think there was like a like a coney 2012 like just wide i've been thinking about coney 2012 this whole podcast (laughs) really it just hit me right now so maybe that's yeah maybe that's the uh we know the episode is over because we just came into full alignment on uh (laughs) On Coney Coney 2012. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, We host this episode and all of our episodes over at our Substack, Coming Along Nicely. And Tim also does some writing over there as well. I'm a little biased, but it's pretty great. You can find him at As It Were or at Nisley.substack.com. We'll see you guys in the next one.